Okay, let's, uh, let's begin. We're going to open in prayer, and then I'm going to ask you to answer a question to yourself, though. So, I don't think we're quite there in our relationship to answer it publicly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so before we begin, I want you to... So, this is a real fundamental question in life, and this question really drives most of our decisions in life. So, you might think it's a simple question, uh, but it's a profound question. And we need to answer it every day of our life. And it's, uh, what do you want? I want us to take a minute to think about answering this question. What do you want? And that, you can be reactive, meaning, I want a cheeseburger. Or maybe that's what you really want in life, I don't know. Um, or reflective. But I, I want us to answer this question, what do we want? Or you could put it another way. Uh, what is your greatest desire? Okay, take a minute. I mean, by the way, literally a minute. I'm, I'm timing it. So. so if you think, boy, that's long. Well, it's just a minute. Answer one question. What do you want? All right, that was a minute. Did it seem like a minute? Maybe, maybe not. All right. So keep that answer in the back of your mind. All right, now I got a little bit of a... Oh, let's see if my clicker works. Oh, I have to turn it on. Oh, I just wasted the battery. Had it on since... Oh, there we go. All right, fill in the blank. Silently. From the baptismal liturgy, do you blank to be baptized? Okay. From the table prayer... Or Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the blank of every living thing. Okay. From the colic for peace, the evening prayer or, and or vespers. O God, from whom come all holy blank, all good counsels, all just works, give to us your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, dot, 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 dot. And then last but not least, from Bach, Cantata, B.W., Ola, V, 147. Um, fill in the blank. All right, now, they, they should have all been pretty much the same. So what do they have in common? Come on, the guys from Joy Group yesterday, you guys know this already, or two days ago. By the way, I didn't know... Yeah, our college, so we, uh, Miguel is gone. He teaches Joy Group. Um, he asked if we could find someone to fill in for him, and I contacted Jeff Leinecker over at the Concordia University of Chicago. I said, hey, could you have any, like, top students who would like to make a few extra bucks and teach Bible study? And so he recommended two students, and the, one, the, top, the, the top one was the guy that came. Anyways, on Saturday, he texts me and says, Hey, Pastor Nelson, did you, you, you knew that uh, I had spring break this week, right? I was like, well, no, in fact, I, I didn't. It's the last I've contacted him. Um, no, he'll be back hopefully this next week. Anyways, uh, on such short notice, I gave a brief, uh, a shorter version of what we're talking about today. So, what do they have all in common? Those who are not joy groupers, what, what, what's the, what do they have in common? Desire. desire, that's right. Desire. Now, desire is something that we don't talk a lot about, but we should. Because, like I said earlier, desire is what drives most of our life. Whether we want to articulate it in those terms or not, that, you know, that could be argued. But, what do you want is a question that really, that really drives us. Now, the word desire itself comes from the Latin, from the stars. 
Okay? In English, though, most desire, desire, we define desire like to long for or to hope for. And, you know, like I said, we don't really talk about desire too much. And why in the world are we doing it today? Well, it's because of John 1. John 1, 38 through 39. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So, this is the first words from Jesus in the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? It could also be translated, uh, what, what do you want? Um, and so this is really important, is that as the first words from Jesus, we have to stand up and sit up and pay attention. This is not like me rummaging around in the junk drawer looking for my keys, and my wife says, what are you, what are you looking for? No. This is a fundamental question that Jesus is asking these followers. Okay, so um, let's give context. John chapter 1, Jesus has talked about very eloquently, um, kind of before the universe, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very eloquently, but um, Jesus doesn't really show up on the scene until later. And he mainly shows up on the scene because of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is making, you know, directing people towards Jesus. And just before this, in verse 35, John the Baptist says, Oh, hey, behold the Lamb of God. And two disciples go and follow him. And Jesus is like, what do you want? No, he, he, he says, he turns and, and says, what are you seeking? And this seeking isn't a question, you know, like I said, that you know, we don't really ask when we're looking around the junk drawer. It's more of, what do you want from life? Or, what will satisfy your search? Do you really desire to walk with me? And so already from the get-go in, in the Gospel of John, desire is part of discipleship. Now, what's great about this is that Jesus gives a certain... Um, Promise. Come, and you will see. So whatever you're seeking, you will find. And so that is a great promise from Jesus that really should help us understand our desires. So when Jesus says, what do you want? He's he's saying, are you, do you have desires? Do you have a new set of desires? Do you have a new way in life? You're going this way, but now you're going that way. I'm sorry, you're going that way, now you're going this way. Um... And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is asking. So in a sense, what we did earlier when I gave you a minute to reflect upon what do you want, Jesus does that first with his disciples in the Gospel of John. And they say, Rabbi, where where are you staying? So, by the way, the the word for seeking is zeteo. Zeteo is actually a word that's often used in, um, like, old teaching or philosophical circles where you would have a person who's interested in learning, you know, obviously this is way before Jesus, but Socrates and Plato, you know, what are they searching for life? What are they looking for life? Or, you know, we see this obviously too in cultural context of Australia when people, when the Aborigines go on a what? A walkabout, right? They're searching for something and at the end of the walkabout they find what makes sense in their life. So that word zedeo uh, is, is an important word. All right. Next, then, where they says, where are you staying? Again, they're not asking Jesus if he's staying at the Holiday Inn Express. But, of course, if Jesus was staying at a hotel, it would be the Holiday Inn Express, right? Because that makes you the smartest person, right? I don't know. What are those commercials? I don't know how to do heart surgery, but I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express. Okay, fine, great, come on. Okay, that was a bad joke, hopefully... Um, anyway, so they're saying, where are you staying? The word is, uh, uh, like, meno, remaining. Like, where, 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 where is your existence residing? I want to be wherever you're at. And so Jesus says, hey, come, come and find out. All right, so, but back to the word de- uh, desire is, uh, you know, from the stars. Go to the stars, from the stars. And that's, uh, so the question is, um, what do you need to get to the stars, 
right? Now, I know we're not thinking about early ancient Near East context. We're talking about 21st century context now. What do you need to go to the stars? Well, you need a rocket ship. Okay, you are the rocket ship in this scenario, right? Your body, your life is the rocket ship. It's the vessel. But what do you, what does the rocket ship need in order to get to the stars? It needs rocket fuel, okay? Um, God gives us rocket fuel. All right, so... Um, and what does what is well, what does God's rocket feel? What drives our life? Um, let's see if it works. Uh, hopefully, this is loud enough. The ancient Greeks had four words for love. The first is philia. Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Next, there's storge. The kind you have for a grandparent or a brother. Third, there's Eros, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The fourth kind of love is different. It's the most admirable. It's called agape. Love has an action. It takes courage, sacrifice, strength. For 175 years, we've been helping people act on their love. So they can look back or look ahead and say, We got the ancient Greek. Hang on. All right, did he, did, it was a commercial for, uh, for life insurance. That was actually a Super Bowl like three or four years ago. It's pretty funny. You know, it kind of sucks you in, and then you're like, Oh, of course I'm going to buy life insurance from them. New York Life. Oh, man, they, they, really, they really love me. I've always wondered, though, if I don't pay my life insurance premium, will they still love me? <laughs> well, yeah, let's, we can always hope. All right, so the four loves, these are Greek words for love. Philia is friendship. Storge is family. Uh, eros we're going to talk about in a second, and agape is sacrifice. Now, eros is a unique one because eros is the, kind of the, what fuels or fills up the rest of them, okay? Now, eros, we obviously get the, the English word erotic from, and erotic has all its baggage, but we're going to try to think like a Greek and understand that eros, the fundamental position of eros is always outward. Outward and upward. In Greek, eros is always outward and upward. Uh, if, if, it's always, if it's inward, they have a different word for that, and we'll, I'll mention that in a second. So, yeah, Eros is always outward and upward and it's always meant for someone. It is like fuel. So we talk about our bodies being the vessel to where the desire is shooting for the stars. And love is the fuel, but just like when you go to the gas station, you have, you have 85E, 87, 89, 91. You got, you know, I don't know, diesel. You got different things. So, um, so like for instance... Uh, we have some moms in here. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to the animal world a little bit. Um, when you're walking through the woods, let's say in northern Wisconsin or in Alaska, what is the one animal you do not want to run into while you're walking through the woods? Well, a baby bear would be okay. But so, you know, no, no, no. I'm going I'm to hold you to it. Baby bear without his mother, not very, not very scared. But what, what is really the terrifying thing? It's not the baby bear, it's what? The mama bear, the she bear. Yeah. Um, if a mama bear did not have eros inside of her, she would maybe kind of convince you to not play around with her baby. She would do all the right things. But no, what does a mama bear do when you come around to her baby? Yeah, she eats your face off. That's right. She, she attacks you because what? She, she's not going to let anything touch her baby. Yeah, it's the power. It's that passion. And, but out of, those, out of those four loves, what is the mama bear practicing? Storge. Storge. She loves her family. Oof. She's not going to let anything touch that. But she's got to have arrows. Storge filled up with arrows is like a 
she-bear protecting her baby out in the woods. So, uh, moms, you can feel that way. I, I think most parents feel this way when their uh, three-year-old is walking next, you know, on the sidewalk next to a busy street. You're hypervigilant. You're, uh, when your baby gets a little, too, when your child gets a little too close to the street, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about stopping your child from going in the street, even if it might mean you get whacked by a rearview mirror, right? You're just, you're, I mean, this is boom. So this is what Arrow says. You're, you're, it's always outward. It's upward. It makes you do things, okay? So Eros is like a fuel that a mother dies for protecting her children. It's the fuel that makes best friends fall on a grenade in battle. And it is also the fuel that makes a man slay a dragon for a woman who might not love him back. What fairy tale? Sleeping Beauty. One of my favorite fairy tales, by the way. Because this... Which, okay, we've all seen the Walt Disney version, right? Who is the prince? Philip. Prince Philip. Okay. Now, he's met her how many times? Yeah, like, well, isn't it like one time maybe or something like that? Okay, but what is, what is, what is, uh, what is Princess Aurora as he's slaying the dragon? What state is she in? She's sleeping, right? She's like she's dead. Um... Now, in the Disney version, he knows, you know, well, he doesn't really know at that time. Uh, but we all know that if he kisses her, he'll wake her up. But he doesn't know that. So he's slaying a dragon. Oh, we locked her out. Oh, no, she's here. Okay, good. Um, she's slaying, he's slaying a dragon. He doesn't even know she's going to love him back. In fact, it's most likely she won't love him back. That is, that is agape filled up with eros. But I also have another version of agape filled up with eros from the movie Elf. Very theologically appropriate. I love him and love him. I don't care who knows it. I love him and love him. I don't care who knows it. I love him and love him. I don't care. Okay. That's what eros is. Eros is this... Now, in, in the film, it's a, this uncontrollable urge. I don't like that. That's actually not true. That would be a more of a different kind of love, or actually not a love. But love is an overwhelming desire. Eros is, like I said in the previous, an overwhelming desire to show love. So, the opposite is desire po- pointed inward, which equals use and lust, and that is Another word in Greek, porneia. Porneira, porneia is always pointed inward and is always driven by lust and use and not by love. So, um, any of those loves, philia, storge, agape, when, it's point, when, and when eros drives those to be pointed inward, turn those loves no longer into love but into something terrible. Okay, so story. Let's go back to the she bear, uh, a mother who abuses her child physically, verbally. That's 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 awful, right? Um, that is not love, of course. All right. So, anyways, um, so like I said, desire pointed outward is a creative force. It makes you do crazy things, wonderful things. I mean, why did God create you? Because he needed someone to tell him how cool he was? For someone to boss around? To someone to create a bunch of rules in life so they're miserable? No. He created you just because he loved you. Okay. With what did God create you? His word, yes, but his word is love. So not only created you because he loves you, he created you with love. And then for what purpose? To love. This is Heidelberg Disputation, Article 28. I say this all the time. And the reason why this is, is that, so this idea of of, um, God loving you, making you with love and for love, 
is this whole thing about purpose in life is that our first primary stance in life is to be loved and then to love in return. And it's when we go outside of ourselves, when we give or when we love, that we finally find ourselves and know who we are as people. Um, You really can't find yourself until you sincerely give yourself up. Because that idea of giving self up is all for those loves in one action. All right. But desire pointed inward is a very destructive force. Luther has a big fancy Latin term, incurvatus in se, curved in. And this is, what, this is our own experience. If, if you don't think so, we'll read the, you know, it's in the Bible too. Jeremiah, if you want to turn to it, Jeremiah 17, 9. It's just one verse. I, I don't think we really need to use this, but I thought, you know, just in case you were wondering if it's in the Bible somewhere. Um, so the thing is, is that uh, we think about ourselves in a picture or an image and even how the Bible talks about this, and this is partly why we sang Jesus, Refuge of the Weary earlier, but when you look inward, what are you looking at? I mean, first of all, you gotta, I don't know how you look inward, but you kinda, this is like kind of the only way I can do it. When you look inward, what are you looking at? What part of your body? Your heart. Okay? So this is where the heart comes into our discussion as Christians, is the heart, well, let's read what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. I did this from memory, so let's make sure I got it right here. Oh, yes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? So your heart is not, not, not so good right now. But if God made us because he loves us with love and for love, then my heart being totally screwed up is not the way it's supposed to be. So, there's something wrong with our hearts, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, despite our best efforts to love, we just can't get out of ourselves. We, are, we just keep thinking about ourselves first, and we keep doing things in self-interest. And so, you know, we need a Savior. We need someone to do something to our hearts, and then subsequently changing our hearts changes our desires and what we want and what we are seeking. So we have to figure out, hey, who's got the greatest desire? All right. So, even though our hearts are totally screwed up, it's natural for us to want something good. I mean, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 11. Even though you guys who are evil, um, I, get, I get the order mixed up. They don't give, you give your son an egg rather than a serpent and give yourself, your son a fish rather than a I thought I would remember. Bread and stone. There we go. Yeah, you get a bread, you get a stone, and then you get an egg and a serpent. Even, okay, so for those who are evil know how to give gifts, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you the Holy Spirit? Um, so, so the thing is, is that even though our hearts are totally screwed up, we have this thing inside of us that is driving us towards something. You know, it's not like when you become a sinner, you don't want anything anymore. You don't have any desires. And, you know, I'll give, yeah. So, in order to desire something good, we first have to be set free. And once we're set free, then we know what is good. And I gave this example yesterday, or Wednesday at Joy Group. It's kind of my classic example of how there is this, in a lot of people, there's this deep-seated 
um, good desire. First of all, they don't know what it is, and they're pointing it at the wrong thing. And, and sin is an archery word. So when you sin, you miss the mark. So um, I've had couples come to me and say, hey, we want to get married. Oh, hey, great, I love being married. Uh, marriage, go marriage. Great, great gift from God. Uh, they're living together. Why, why are you living together? Well, we want to make sure our marriage works. Okay, how many people are for marriages working? Anybody? Okay, great, yeah, right? Okay, good, excellent. So they have a desire that they want their marriage to work. So do I. Hopefully everybody in this room, too. But are they shooting at the right target? Not, no, not, no. They, they, they are doing things, as we would say, out of order. And so you never want to say to somebody... What's wrong with you? No, because they want, they want something good. Okay, great. Um, but because their minds, and, and this isn't particularly just them, but all of our minds and hearts are still attacked by sin, we need to the forgiveness of sins to set our minds and hearts free so then that we can see what is most good. And in this particular instance, they, just, they can't see what's most good, although they want what's most good, and that is a successful marriage. So this is where um, they have to be set free from the forgiveness of sins. And once your hearts are redeemed, and this is why I'm a big proponent of the Luther seal, I don't really like it as decoration. I, hate, I really think it's cheesy uh, in terms of decoration. No offense to anybody who really likes it as decoration. But I love it for what it teaches. And Luther is very adamant about this. He's like, you must have a red heart because it has to be a real one, like a fleshy one. And then inside the heart is the cross because your heart, Jesus lives inside of your heart. So the real presence of Christ inside of you alive and kicking. And so this is where once your hearts are, are, once you're forgiven, your hearts are redeemed, your now desires are opened up to the Holy Spirit. And that word open up is very important because once you're opened up, you're, you're outward, you're upward. You're shooting for the stars. But once your heart is closed, you can only think about yourself. And so when Jesus enters, he breaks into the heart like a karate champion. Uses a big cross to get into your heart. And then once he sets up shop, your heart now becomes this wonderful, beautiful thing. Because Jesus is there guiding you through this. You're not by yourself, because by yourself, your heart is closed, and when things are closed, it's dark, it's scary, and you're not really going to find out anything. But once Jesus enters into your heart and opens it up, and then you're driven by the Holy Spirit, great things happen. All right, so, um, you know what's good. So let's put it this way. You say, oh, pastor, that sounds wonderful, but my heart is... I would describe my heart that way. Well, praise be to God. The sinner's heart is very content with itself. It's only the Christian, the only one who has faith, where the heart hurts. Because there's a battle going on in it. When you're a sinner, and when I say sinner, I mean like those who don't think about God and doesn't want to do God's will, or, you know, um, they're very content. Their heart feels great, it's fine. There's no battle going on in there. But for the Christian, there's a battle going on. And in order for that battle to succeed, you need to school your desires. Now, but in order for that to happen, you actually need to know what the highest good is for, you, for to desire the highest good thing. And this is where I handed out your, the hymnals. Hymn 619. Uh, these are beautiful hymns, uh, in the German especially. In fact, I don't know why I didn't, I didn't, I didn't include the German in my notes. No, nuts. Um, all right, so 618, 619, you know, they're written by the same guy. and I can only turn in like two of the same things in school. Kind of is different. That would be great. But... Um, 
just look at the refrain real quick. Lord, may thy body and thy blood be for my soul the highest good. Now, in 619 especially, the body given for me, O sa- verse 1, sorry, thy body given for me, O Savior, the blood which thou for me didst shed, these are my life and strength forever. By them my hungry soul is fed. The body and blood of Jesus, which of course brings, what do they bring according to the small catechism? Forgiveness of sins. Life and salvation, that's right. Now we think about life, we're, we're not um, Billy Crystal in the uh, Princess of the Bride. I forgot their character names, though. And Princess Bride? What are they? Miracle Max. So, for those who might not have seen Princess Bride, the main character looks like he might be dead. But in fact, he's not dead. He's what? Mostly dead, which means slightly alive. Now, for many of us, when we see this kind of person lying in the street, you say, is he dead? No, he's alive. Is he really alive? I mean, is he really, is that what the life we describe when we think about the small catechism? Forgiveness, life, and salvation, is that the kind of life we're talking No, we're not talking about that kind of life. We're talking about being fully alive with joy, peace, and love. So, this is exactly what we're talking about here in hymn 619. And um, second verse now. With thee, Lord, I am now united. I live in thee, and thou in me. No sorrow fills my soul. Delighted, it finds its only joy in thee. We can keep going. But uh, the uh, German is really, wow, really, like, eros, filled with this passionate love. Um... And unfortunately, uh, the thing in the German, I think it's the fifth verse in the German, it actually tells us what God's desire is. His ardent desire is for you. Um, all right. So, yeah, we have to, I already gave away the answer. What is Jesus' desire? Now, um, it, it's you. Yeah. Your heart is always full of desire and burning of more lust for poor sinners to embrace and sinners come also to you. Jesus, let your flesh and blood my soul be a highest good. Yeah, now um, the German, uh, the word for uh, passion is L-U-S-T. Or, I don't even know exactly how to translate it in English. But when we see that as English, we always think of it like lust and sinful but that's not how it's always used in German, and that's complicated, but neither here nor there. I mean, Krista could probably help us on that one, but anyways, thank you for finding that. Oh, hey, do you have uh, actually 619? I mean, 618? It's not the same, I know. It's, it's uh, I forgot the German. Yeah, you get the point. You can trust me. Look it up later. Look it up later. Excellent. What is Jesus' desire? It's you, but... Even for that, though, we have a lot of Bible verses throughout Scripture that tells us what God wants. Oh, hey, I do have it here. Um, This is from 618, the fifth verse from 618. Sorry. Very similar, though, to 619. Like I said, you know, he wrote two hymns very similar. Your heart is always full of longing and burns with ardent desire to embrace poor sinners. That's why I, sinner, Come to you, too. My Jesus, let your flesh and blood be the greatest good of my soul. Um, yeah, so what does he want? He wants all to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, verse 9. He wants mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's from Matthew 9, verse 13. And he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy. All right, so... What is Jesus' desire? We go back to John chapter 1. He wants them to come along and be with him. That's what he wants. 
He's not saying, hey, you come along and if you measure up, you're good to go. He's like, no, no, you're with me. I want you to be here. So what does he want? He wants you all. And God wants you back. He doesn't want you to be as like a citizen in his kingdom. I know there's that language in the Bible, but he really, to go back to the four loves, he's like a father who wants his son back. Do we have a story in the Bible about that? Yeah. Prodigal son. Where the father has everything for the son. And we know that he's very passionate about loving his son because, why? He runs and meets them on the road. He does something undignified. He has this uncontrollable, I'm sorry, this overwhelming desire to love his son. If we get to it, I'll explain why I don't like using the word uncontrollable. Um, Yeah, okay, great. So um, it's like a friend who wants his friends back. Now, there's there's a few, few examples of this in Bible. Jonathan and David. But there's Jesus and the 12 apostles in John chapter 15. No greater love has no man. Then what? He lays down his life for his friends. And if you love the Jungle Book, the old version, of course, we know that Vergita says that in honor of Baloo, right? Yeah. Right, Brigida is the panther, right? Bagheera. Who's Brigida? Oh, that, that's our friend. Yeah, that's a friend of ours. <laughs> That's right, never mind. That's, that's a, well, she's a, a, a young lady now, but um, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, wait a second. What's his name? Bagheera. <laughs> yeah, Bagheera uh, says of, of Baloo, by the way, who sacrifices himself for his friends. Yes, it's a beautiful, very, you don't know if he's dead, but he's, he's just knocked out. Okay. That, that's it. That he wants us all back, and he's going to act that way. He's not going to be um, a cold-hearted clinician. He's a passionate lover. And, of course, he's a passionate lover, like a man who's willing to uh, give up everything for his wife. And, of course, we have a lot of examples in the Old Testament from Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, and then of course, you know, Adam and Eve. He gave up him part of his body from his side for his wife. So when Jesus wants us back, it's the eros that drives him to fulfill these loves, because uh, you know, a husband can always give his wife flowers on Valentine's Day, but as most women, which I think is true, it should, you should be this way, um, they want their husband to want to give them flowers, not just give them flowers, right? So that is what we're talking about, is that the husband's passion for his, and of course, that's what we call the trigium. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Sunday, what do we call that? We call that the passion of the Christ. Or we read from Christ's passion. So that is... Jesus' desire is to have you and in this relationship. And, and Martin Luther agrees. This is from the large catechism. I love the large catechism. A lot of desire language in actually the Ten Commandments and then also in the Lord's Prayer. But what more could you want or desire than God's gracious promise that he wants to be yours, not just as a cl- clinician, but with every blessing to protect us and to help you in every need. He wants to be yours, but in a particular way. And his desire for us is fueled by love. Now the thing is, though, remember, God created us because he loves us, by his love and for his love. So then it fits in our nature, our, our true nature, then to love him in return. His, his, his greatest desire is to love us, and our greatest desire can only be filled in loving God in return. 
So our relationship with God is, of course, based on this love, theoretically. I mean, what's reality, though, when we talk about what we want in life? Uh, C.S. Lewis has a really nice quote from The Weight of Glory. Um, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. So unfortunately, we, we desire these things uh, that are less than what's really awesome. And then we also distrust our desires. Because we're so used to pointing our desires at the wrong thing that we think now our desires themselves are wrong. And so we do two things with it. Well, there's three ways of handling desires to, to fit this quote. One is the, um, of the stoic. You're going to push down your desires. You're going to stuff them in. You're going to repress them. Oh, I shouldn't have these desires. Um, and that kind of sounds like, oh, man, I shouldn't, I shouldn't desire a, a woman who's not my wife, so I'm just going to stuff that down. Well, that, that's, that's true. I mean, I shouldn't desire a woman who's not my wife. Um, and so we kind of understand that stuffing down things might be just that's how Christians handle things. Because the opposite is the addict. So we either have the stoic or the addict, and the addict is to indulge those desires. Another way to talk about it is the starvation diet and the fast food diet, um, which might be inappropriate now for Lent because some of us might be hungry this morning. But our desires we can handle by starving them, just pushing them down, or we can indulge them by eating all the fast food. And if I have those two choices when I'm really hungry, when I want my, when I'm really hungry in life and I want something, I'm going to choose the fast food diet. It's going to be easy. But of course, if anyone has seen Supersize Me, the movie, we know that it does not end well. And it's like most, at most addicts. And it, it, I mean, I have, I have lots of addicts in my wider family. It doesn't end well. It doesn't go well. So starvation diet doesn't go well because you die. Um, but then there's the third one, and that is the mystic. The mystic is the one that embraces his desires and sits with them in order to point them in the right, right direction. Because our rocket ships, when our desire fuel and our rocket ships are pointed downward, what happens to the rocket ship? It blows up. But when you have the rocket ship pointed in the right direction, filled with the rocket fuel that's going to get it to where it needs to go, it's a glorious thing. It's an amazing thing. People show up and they you know, stand, I don't know how many miles away in order to watch it, and we stop schools and we watch it go. And so this is what the mystic does. The mystic has these desires, strong desires, And rather than stuffing them down or shooting them at the wrong thing and indulging them, he prayerfully points them in the right direction. Now, and that's because desire is meant for holiness. So you go back in the beginning when I said, what do you want in life? Were you thinking whatever you got pointed towards desire? Some of you might have been. Um... See, God has given us desires for holiness. Well, first of all, what's holiness? It's being a really good person, right? No. Holiness is not based on anything you do. Holiness is always received. And holiness itself is standing in the presence of God, receiving his gifts. So holiness is always based on that relationship with God. And I'm not going to go through Leviticus, but Leviticus points this out. 
where all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were about bringing people into the holy presence of God, the holy of holies, to receive his holiness and then live a life of holiness, which is the Holy Spirit alive in person. So this is why when our greatest desire is for God, then our greatest desire is also for holiness. Because that drives us to God, where we receive the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And then when we're in the presence of God, we receive these great gifts, and we're spending time with God. And when we spend time with God, as we said in the prayers, O God, from whom come all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to us this day, da-da-da-da. We're asking God to give us those, good, that, those holy desires so that when we go and live, we desire what God wants. And what does God, what does God want? He wants people. So all of our relationships are meant to point in the same direction as our desires. So our desires rightly ordered, based on God's love, means desires is meant for holiness, which means then we go back to those four loves. We're not going to parse all those out today. Um, but, of course, holiness within the family, okay, that, that seems kind of easy. I love my children. I want, uh, you know, because of my, my forgiveness of sins and my relationship with the Heavenly Father through Christ our Lord, powered by the Holy Spirit, I want to draw them into the presence of God too. Well, how does a father love his children? In a variety of ways. But we're bringing them. Uh, friends, similar too. Um, it's usually gets, it gets, usually gets a, um, uh, well, interesting when we talk about husbands and wives and um, how their relationship is meant for holiness. And, but we won't talk about that today. But um, you might learn something that someday. But all of those desires, when they're pointed in the right direction, are always fulfilled in God, but never to the exclusion of these other relationships, because God gives us these other relationships then to help us and support us in that same relationship with him himself. So we have, we have a problem, right? We have a problem with you know, loving our family. We have a problem with loving our friends. We have problems loving our spouses. Um, and by the way, every, everyone in this room fits one of those. So you uh, have something to live for. So your eros in your life is a creative force for holiness in one of those relationships. But... If you kind of look, oh man, uh, I, I really want something that's really not directed towards holiness. Welcome to the club. First of all, I, always, I don't, I don't always want good things. So we got to, we got to figure out how we can school our desires, and this is precisely why I don't like the uncontrollable urge, according to the commercial. Uncontrollable means what? Are you responsible? No. Let's go back to my example with Valentine's Day. How many uh, women would really appreciate their husbands giving them flowers? Well, I, I had to. It's uncontrollable. Couldn't do anything about it. Well, it might sound kind of interesting at first. After a while, you're like, wait a second. Did you want to do this? Or you just had to? Like, now I'm getting, I'm confused. All right. So the uncontrollable is not very helpful. Urge. Ugh. I hate that word. Although I use it, and if you guys were ever growing up in Wisconsin and had to go to Quick Trip, Stephen's point, right? Do you remember the old, you had to satisfy the urge, and it was like this huge cup of soda. Satisfy the urge by drinking like 64 ounces of Coca-Cola. Well, that right now might feel, seem really good. Okay, now I don't like the urge because it seems like it's like not calculated and not thought about and you're not in control and it's like, oh, I just got to get it over with and I'm done. After pounding 64 ounces of Coke, oh, I'm done with that, I'm good. No, I don't like that. So I like this, this um, different way of speaking about it. So this is why um, I don't like using that. So how do we, we have to school our desires, even the passionate ones. Because guess what? Who's more passionate than your passion desires? It's Jesus. It's the cross that's in your heart that can school your desires so that they're always meant for holiness, meant for life, not 
slightly alive life, but full blast life that brings joy, happiness, contentness, purpose, and also suffering. We can talk about that some other day, too. All right, so how do you do it? Well, you do it through confession, prayer, and fasting, which, of course, is perfect time to talk about it, right? Lent. All right, so I can barely read this, and I'm standing here. Um, so first of all, confession. My thoughts and desires have been sold with sin. If you've ever been to private confession, you know that's what you say. Because we know our thoughts and desires have been sold with sin because we have a battle inside of our hearts. Those who are completely content with their soiled hearts don't go to confession. Right? I mean, I, whether you go to general confession or private confession, okay, I'm not going to get into that now. I would encourage everyone to go to private, or, yeah, individual confession. I think that's how we say it in the hymnal. Yeah, I mean, I, I go regularly. I'm a big proponent of it. All right, but the thing is, though, at the end of your confession, you say, I want to do better. If you do not want to do better, just stop and leave. Don't, don't even, like, just go. As a pastor, I'll be like, oh, hey, I guess they haven't really schooled their desires quite yet. We're not saying, I will be better. Because you can't guarantee that. Why? Because you're, you're, the devil's, he's, oops, the devil is uh, pretty sneaky and he, we do a lot of things we don't want to do. Who does that sound like? I do things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. It's almost, oh, that's right, it's like the Bible, Romans chapter 7. Okay, so when we say I want to do better, <laughs> you better want to do better. That's desire. Okay. Repenting means aiming at the right target. So, like that one couple I mentioned, I said, hey, let's, you know, let's think about this a little bit. And over a few meetings, I said, hey, you know, this is why the church says we, we, um, we don't have people live together before marriage. And they're like, huh, that makes sense now. Interesting. I didn't know that about love and marriage and it's usually, it's, it's always been the woman who said, yeah, okay, we'll live apart, which I, I, find, I always find interesting. Um, it, it doesn't always work, though. I want to make sure that you all, it's, because uh, we're putting things in order when you get married. We'll talk about that another time. Sorry. All right, keep going, Pastor. All right, after you've been forgiven, your hearts have been cleansed, you've been set right, your desires now are pointed in the right direction or at the right target, God himself, the heart of God, uh, then we, oh, then we have to spend some time in prayer. And this is why desire is also in the large catechism as it relates to the Lord's prayer. So you take time reflecting upon your desires. Prayer is time to reflect upon your longings. In fact, uh, an old uh, Christian, I don't remember his, I don't know who it is, he said, prayer is nothing, nothing but longing for God. I like that. That's what prayer is, longing for God. And that's why if you always long for God, then pray, praying un, you know, without ceasing is, seems to be a lot easier than what I was told as a kid about praying unceasing. But that's precisely what Jesus says. Hey, what are you seeking? What do you want in life? What do you want? What's your desires? And we take time for prayer to reflect upon those. Because those prayers who are in line with, I mean, those desires that are aligned with Christ, we still want those. Strengthen those, Lord. Protect those, Lord. Um, but those that are not, we turn those struggles into a prayer by asking God for holy desires. So this is where the mystic comes in. And there's a great story about two bishops walking down the street. This is in the Middle Ages in Rome. And a, a, a prostitute walks by. One bishop diverts his eyes. He's like, oh. And the other guy, though, stares at her. And the bishop who diverted his eyes is like, what are you doing? Don't look, don't, don't, don't treat her like an object. And, and the other guy, and I, I will have to look up their names, um, says, no, 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 you got me all wrong. I see a beautiful, beautiful child of God who doesn't know how beautiful she is. Now, that guy who's struggling could say, oh, Lord, there's a beautiful child of God in front of me. 
I need to direct those desires to you, Lord. Sanctify those desires so that I may look at her the same way that he does. Well, just to end the story, she notices him looking at him. And the, the gaze of his eyes, the look of his eyes, said to her, this is the first man who's actually looked at me like a human being. And she ran away. Well, anyways, you know, the streets of Rome. He, uh, they, they, they run into each other again. And she confesses this to him. Well, long story short, she becomes a Christian and opens up a home for, or a house or whatever, a ref, place of refuge for other prostitutes. Amazing. But it's because this guy turned his struggles into a prayer and asked God for holy desires that it came about. Now, here's the thing, though. Prayer and fasting go together. They're not really separate. They go together. So fasting, we often think about an annihilation, like I'm, I'm stuffing things down. But rather, it's like Jesus. It's a, just an overwhelming desire to say yes to God's love. Hey, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's not saying no to bread. He's saying yes to God's word. So fasting is a, is a confession of this. And of course, saying no to a potato chip is practice for all sorts of bodily desires. So this is something where fasting isn't just about food, but it's about your entire spiritual life. And you being in control of your desires rather than being uncontrollable urge. So when you're in control of your desires, then you ask God, hey, where should I point this? This overwhelming love for my friend is, is, is it pointed in the right direction? Well, the Lord will show you. Seek and you will find. Jesus says, come and see. All right. Um, oh, and then last but not least, Martin Luther, I'm going to finish with this quote. Faith causes the heart. I like this. This is very, like, um, mystical. Faith causes, because I think Luther handles his desires like a mystic. Not like an addict or a stoic, but like a mystic. Faith causes the heart to cling to celestial things and in rapture to be carried away. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's like, oh, carried away. Um, To dwell in the things that are invisible. We're going to go to that special place. That place where sin doesn't touch you anymore. It's going to be the place where, oh, another word for rapture in this is ecstasy. Celestial things, heavenly things, you know, just just beautiful things. Faith causes the heart to cling to the heavenly things. Rockets pointed up to the stars. Um, But this is where I love Luther. This is where he's different than Middle middle Ages, like uh, Roman Christians. People like uh, St. John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila. Um, For this is how it happens. That the believer hangs between heaven and earth. That is to say, in Christ, he's suspended in the air and earth and is crucified. So all that celestial things and ecstasy is not experienced out of body, but precisely in the body of the crucified Christ. Now, if you were here a few years ago, and we went through um, readings of Katharina Regina von Greifenberg, This is precisely what her meditations were about. This passionate love for the wounds of Jesus. Hide me in your wounds, Lord. Let me kiss all the the love wounds. I mean, this is beautiful language. It's because she's a mystic, and she points her desires to the thing that matters the most. And here on earth, the only thing that will satisfy our desires is the crucified Christ, because this is where we run into God's love, his passion, and what he does for us. And it's only through the death of Jesus that we come to the resurrection. All right. I didn't leave any time for questions, so if anybody wants to stay after, feel free, but let's pray, and then you're out of here. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, see ya.